get off the red line of Harrison, you'll be underground, so aim your exit northward. At the top of some crumbling stairs and a jolting escalator, hit the turnstile, hang a right, and then head up straightward. You'll find yourself standing by a parking lot on the southeast corner of Harrison and State. Students, either from Roosevelt University to the north of you, or Jones College Prep High School to the west, hustle by with books and earbuds. A for-profit media school chain promising shots at ill-defined careers in broadcasting for everyone whose tuition check clears set up a site kitty-corner from the parking lot where you're standing. Green and orange line trains run to your east. Hotels and offices surround you. It's just a street corner. Average. Run-of-the-mill. Enjoy it. Because if this podcast has its way, it's the last street corner you'll ever see. If I do this right, you'll start to look at the parking lot, and instead of Nissan's and early bird rates, you'll see the $1.15 billion sweetheart deal that quadrupled the cost of downtown street parking. You'll look up at the stoplight and see the millions of dollars and counting in bribes that installed the digital eyes that track us. Or you'll look at Jones College Prep and see the $23 million of district contracts former Chicago Public School CEO Barbara Bird Bennett steered to her former boss in exchange for a 10% cut. The L train rumbling to your east will make you see the Gilded Age honeypot scam that elevated the elevated. A bit north of that and across State Street, the aluminum fire owl jutting out from the Harold Washington Library will make you see the Council Wars, where a parent called the Eddies ground the city to a halt rather than take orders from the first black mayor. This is the Chicago Corruption Walking Tour. I'm here to take you horrible places. Your attention, please. I'm Paul Daling, former journalist, former tour guide, former Scott kid. From 2016 to 2019, I ran a walking tour company aimed at Chicago political corruption. Frustrated by spending years writing about Illinois politics to receive shrugs, smirks, and it's the Chicago way. I spent four summers luring tourists in with promises of wacky Rod Blagojevich stories and leaving them angry and hopefully revitalized about gerrymandering, TIF districts, rubber stamp aldermen, manipulated statistics, manipulated media, and other modern civics. You're listening to an expanded version of the tour. I picked 20 spots, some from the old tour and some brand new, that I think tell the story of American politics. The details might be Midwestern, but the issues and dirty tricks are universal. All the spots are within a four-mile stretch of downtown Chicago, episode by episode, to take you on a walking tour of your own. Grab your phone, get out into the real world, and experience corruption at the locations it built. With that in mind, remember the for-profit media school on the northwest corner of our intersection? There's a dog park there. It's open to the public 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. It has fake grass, real trees, and comfortable benches where you can sit and listen to the story. This first episode starts us off in the 1880s, when Chicago politicians were at the halfway point between frontier brawler and slick city sharpster. It's a story in four chapters about political appointments, a pirate's ears, the booze-soaked history of the American ballot, and this average, run-of-the-mill street corner of dog parks and high schools, where, on Election Day 1884, a gunfight broke out between Chicago police and the United States Marshal Service. Chapter 1. Blackjack Yatta Had No Ears Blackjack Yatta had no ears, at least not according to a Chicago Tribune article from 1900, seven years after Blackjack was carried by a chorus of angels to, if you're of those beliefs, hell. The article called Yatta the hero of as many rough-and-tumbled fights as a prize bulldog, and bore almost as many scars as the mementos of his battles. Both his ears were gone, and the scars on his face were enough to frighten a timid man into a quick decline. 
Julius Blackjack Yatau's biography says more about 19th century journalism than it does about him. When he died in 1893, the Chicago Daily Globe reported Yatau was born in Rochester, New York. The Chicago Times said Syracuse, New York. The Daily Interocean said he was born in Scotland. And if you read the Chicago Tribune in the late 1800s, Blackjack Yatau was from Portugal. He was 45, 47, 53, or 54 when he died of pneumonia, typhoid fever, or typhoid pneumonia on April 19th or 20th, 1893. He came to Chicago as a farmer or sailor before or after the Great Fire. The different newspapers reported different versions of his personality, too. The Chicago Times described him as, as bold a rover as ever cruised on the Spanish main. However, the Chicago Daily News called Yatta a harmless crank who would cry and whine whenever the local police sergeant tried to take him in. He was never in the Bridewell but once in the Evening Post, but according to the Globe, in the last 10 years, the police court records of Chicago show more cases against Yatta than any other prisoner. And then there were his ears. According to different tellers, Blackjack Yatta's ears were either completely normal, or been sliced off entirely in a knife fight, or been cropped by authorities out east as a punishment for some undisclosed crime. Even the Chicago Tribune article I quoted like 10 seconds ago described him as earless underneath an illustration of a completely eared man. One thing the newspapers of the 1800s could agree on was the bum boat. A bum boat is a little ferry that runs supplies to from between larger boats moored in a harbor. Blackjack's bum boat, which he moored off the harbor break wall by what's now Buckingham Fountain, was a, how do I put this, floating whorehouse, slash, floating saloon, slash, floating gambling hall, slash, floating place to get your face slashed, a knife fight, and then chucked in Lake Michigan by a fellow patron who didn't quite like how you drank Delta Horde. Picture a Wild West saloon, but, you know, a boat. And here's what's amazing to me. Blackjack got away with it for years because of deep-dive, poli-sci nerdery. The man knew how to work jurisdictional boundaries. He kept the boat on the lakeside of the break wall, so it was always out of city of Chicago jurisdiction. Although the break wall itself was technically a pier owned by the federal government, Yatah anchored to the lake bed instead of to the break wall, and when people wanted to get on board, he'd spread a plank between the pier and the boat for people to walk across. Since the plank, and not the boat, was touching U.S. government property, the boat always stayed just outside of federal jurisdiction, too. In August 1885, city, state, and federal officials gathered at the Custom House, a rickety post-fire federal building on the block now known for a safety-red modern sculpture called Flamingo, to determine who, if anyone, had jurisdiction over Blackjack's floating tavern. Mid-debate, U.S. Commissioner Philip Uncle Phil Hoyne, politicians had some really great nicknames back then, pulled out a copy of the original act that put Illinois in the Union to see who, if anyone, had the power to arrest the pirate. Bit of a digression here. If you're familiar with Chicago, your ears might have perked up a bit when you heard the name Hoyne. This is not the Hoyne they named Hoyne Avenue after. They named the street after Philip's brother, Thomas Hoyne, who, for 28 days in 1876, was one of two men claiming to be the mayor of Chicago. The year before, Chicago had signed on to the Illinois Cities and Villages Act, which moved mayoral elections from November to April and extended mayoral terms from one year to two. Mayor Harvey Colvin claimed this gave him another year's mayor. Others interpreted the act to mean the next mayor would get the two-year term. 
In the stalemate, the city council left the mayoral race off of the list of upcoming elections, in essence saying there wasn't going to be a mayoral election that year. As a protest, Thomas Hoyne, the chairman of the Chicago Public Library Board of Directors, went ahead with the April election on his own, running as an independent in a write-in campaign. He won handily. 33,000 votes to Hoyne, 800 votes to everyone else. It helped that none of the major parties offered a candidate. But Hoyne basically declared his own election, won it, and started saying he was the mayor. But the city council backed him, swearing him in as mayor that May in an effort to force out Colvin, who'd sort of squatting in the mayorship. City government split, with different departments backing different mayors. The city council and most departments supported Hoyne, the comptroller, and, most importantly, the police, supported Colvin. The police barricaded City Hall, both to keep riots at bay and to block Thomas Hoyne from the building. The standoff between the two mayors lasted four weeks. On June 5th, the Cook County Courts declared Thomas Hoyne's election had been illegal. The city held a special election a week later, electing Monroe Heath. I do consider Thomas Hoyne a mayor of Chicago, however. In August 1876, a few months after all the nonsense cleared, the city attorney declared Thomas Hoyne had in fact been mayor of Chicago. Making Thomas Hoyne retroactively a valid mayor was the only way the city department heads he had appointed could get paid. Neat story. Let's get back to Blackjack. The act that Phil, Uncle Phil Hoyne pulled out in 1885 to see who could arrest Yatah put the eastern edge of the state not at the lakefront, but smack dab in the middle of Lake Michigan. This meant Yatah's boat was within Illinois' jurisdiction, so it could have been charged under state law if officials had any interest in going after him. They didn't. The pirate was political, you see, as much operative as outlaw. Less than a year before Uncle Phil the Crusader held special meetings to determine who could arrest the public scourge Blackjack, Blackjack was working for Uncle Phil the politician as a hired election day goon. A saloon keeper on land as well as water, Yatta was deep in Second Ward Republican politics from the 1870s to the 1890s. Harrison Street, where you're sitting among fake grass and faker media schools, was the boundary at the time between the first and second wards. The first ward ran north to the river, the second ran south to 16th Street. They were both low-income immigrant communities in slum conditions, mile after mile of saloon, brothel, alleyway. Yetaw was an enforcer for second ward alderman James Jim Diap Appleton. As scary as Blackjack was, when he started to publicly challenge the aldermen, the two arranged a time and place, and, again according to the Tribune, the political warriors of the Second Ward gathered with bated breath to see their champions sustain the dignity of his position with force of arms. It was a Homeric struggle. When it was over, Blackjack had a new assortment of scars and was quite ready to take off his hat to his conqueror. It was a time when the aldermen had to be tougher than their goons. Like Yetta, Jim Diap was also a saloon keeper. Tavern ownership was really common among Chicago politicians of the late 1800s. In 1892, 13 of the city council's 68 aldermen were on record as bar owners. By the time of the 1895-96 council, it was up to 18. Barkeeps found that people coming in to beg political favors were willing, thirsty patrons, and people looking to get elected learned the value of being the center of a community hub. 
as the Chicago Tribune wrote in 1900, so it happened that saloon keepers sought aldermanic nominations, and politicians seeking aldermanic nominations became saloon keepers, so that at one time it seemed as if the sole business of the council was to represent and legislate for the saloon interests of Chicago. The era of the saloon keeper alderman was more democratic in a way. It was easier for low-income Chicagoans to find favor at the corner bar than at City Hall. And it sounds cool, doesn't it? Old-timey and gritty as hell? But despite your notions of your own grit, rebel cred, and your ability to throw back grog with the boys of the bumboat, they were wolves. You, I, and anyone else from the era of changing your Facebook profile photo to a fresh I voted sticker would have just been a few more sheep. It was a different era, and man, was it bloody. Second Ward Alderman Jim Diapp's saloon was at State and Polk, about two blocks south of the dog park where you're sitting. That's where, in 1886, a political operative named Ike Rivers bit off Alderman Appleton's thumb and a chunk of his lip in a brawl over, depending on who's telling the story, either an appointment to the post office or a free drink. Biting off the alderman's thumb, I cannot get over saying that phrase, didn't hurt Ike Rivers politically. He was a big mover and shaker in the black community, and in 1891 was appointed to the Chicago Police Department as the personal policeman to Mayor Hempstead Washburn. But that wasn't the only cannibal alderman of the era. In 1895, 29th Ward Alderman Buck McCarthy bit off 15th Ward Alderman Joe Lammer's ear in a fight at the Great Northern Hotel, where the Dirksen Federal Center now sits. About a year after that, Alderman Billy Webb, also of the 29th, Wards had two aldermen at the time then, beat the hell out of McCarthy during a second Congressional District Caucus at a state fairgrounds building in Springfield, devoted on ordinary occasion to the exhibit of fat sheep. Blackjack Yatta was one of a hundred of a thousand savages working the corner of crime and politics in various official and unofficial capacities in Chicago's then 34 wards. He wasn't special. He wasn't unique. In popular culture, Yatta is mainly remembered because of a nod in Nelson Algren's 1951 prose poem, Chicago, City on the Make. He's one entry in a list of oddly named Chicago criminals Algren cherry-picked from the centuries, wielding numbs to gear like Duffy the Goat, Hungry Joe Lewis, Jew Kid Grabiner, and Fancy Tom O'Brien, the King of the Bunko Men. Nelson rattled off the villains' names, but as for the victims, he described them only like this. Anonymous thousands living in anonymous rows along anonymous streets under an anonymous moon. Chapter 2. A Vile Venetian Juggle Let's take a step back. If you're picturing a modern election with silent grade school gyms and wristband-dealing old ladies, you're not going to understand how a poll watcher in the 1884 presidential election ended up dead less than a block from where you're sitting. From colonial days through the 1800s, election day was raucous and drunken, and voting did not look like what we consider voting today. Depending on region and era of vote, could be anything from a shout of support on the courthouse steps to party-line ballots deposited in full view of everyone, with each voter's names and picks running in the next edition of the local paper. The secret ballot and private voting booth we considered so sacred in the 2020s just didn't exist. It was a leftover from America's British roots. Voting in secret was seen as cowardly and unmanly. 
If you believed something, you declared it openly in front of your friends and neighbors. Voting in secret was, to quote the colonial governor of South Carolina in 1744, a vile Venetian juggle that would destroy the noble, generous openness that is characteristic of Englishmen. James Glenn had been governor since 1738, but didn't actually show up in South Carolina until 1743. When he did, he discovered that the locals he had ruled for half-decade had, in his absence, developed a secret ballot, a property tax, representative allocation based on population, and other political oddities Glenn deemed counter to the mishmash of case law, statute, and weird-ass tradition they call the British Constitution. How much our nation of immigrants, slaves, and expropriated natives inherited British sensibilities is up for debate. But America didn't inherit British common law and the British taste for hooch. Alcohol was a constant in early elections, uh, either as a reward from the candidate for a vote well cast or a pre-voting reminder that your guy is quite a guy. Swilling the planters with Bumbo, as the ridiculously pre-revolutionarily named Theodoric Bland of Cossons called it in 1765, was a British tradition made colonial. Politicians would, very openly, earn support by getting the voters drunk. An idealistic 23-year-old George Washington tried to go without the bumbo, a frankly disgusting-sounding drink made of rum, water, sugar, and nutmeg, and run on the issues in his 1755 race to represent Frederick County in the Virginia House of Burgesses. He was eviscerated, getting 40 votes compared to the 271 his looser-with-the-free-booze opponent received. When Washington ran again in 1758, he had learned his lesson. This time, he provided the 391 Frederick County voters 28 gallons of rum, 50 gallons of rum punch, 34 gallons of wine, 46 gallons of beer, and 2 gallons of cider royal, which is concentrated cider mixed with honey. This time, he got 331 votes and stayed in the House of Burgesses up until the Revolutionary War. The tradition of getting your voters drunk continued after the colonies became the states. In one congressional race in Virginia in 1799, voters would push their way through a throng around the courthouse, vote by announcing their preference out loud in full view of the candidates and a few election judges, get a personal and delightfully old-timey thank you from the candidates they voted for, may you live a thousand years, and I thank you, sir and then head back on the courthouse lawn to join the rager. According to one account of the race, liquor in abundance was on the court green for the friends of either party. A barrel of whiskey for all, with the head knocked in, and the majority took it straight. Independent of the political excitement, the liquor added fuel to the flame. Fights became common, and every now and then there would be a knockdown and drag out affray, to quell which required all the power of the county justices. This race was so tight, uh, the party started going to the homes of people who hadn't voted, to physically drag them to the polls. This included two local parsons. The second parson voted for the candidate, the first parson didn't, telling his friend it was solely to cancel out his vote, and now we shall hear of no complaints of the clergy interfering in elections. The eventual winner of this boozy, violent, parson kidnapping contest was future Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall. When a region opted for a paper ballot, it didn't look like what you're picturing either. Starting with the colony's first paper ballot, picking the new pastor of a church in Salem, Massachusetts in 1629, the ballots were whatever scraps of paper the voters happened to have on them. In some places, voters walked up to a big public list and signed beneath the name of the candidate they liked best. That, like the voice vote, became impractical as cities grew. During the 1800s, paper ballots evolved into tickets. Each political party would print up for its own voters, 
listing only its own candidates. Voters either clipped these ballots out of partisan newspapers or party operatives called ticket peddlers handed them out at polling places on election day. If you wanted to, I don't know, say vote for candidates from both parties, the ticket peddler could help you with a split. That is, taking a knife and cutting off the name of a candidate you don't like, or a paster, gluing the name of a candidate you do like over another name. Splits and pasters might sound horrifying to everyone still picturing modern I-voted wristbands doled out by local retirees, but they were the clumsy toddles towards a ballot that was able to represent an individual voter's will. If you like the Republican national platform and what the Democrats were doing locally, or if you just like candidates on both sides, your options were to vote against your conscience in half the races because a piece of paper told you to, or fix the piece of paper. Since party operatives were the ones handing out the ballots, it was pretty easy to fold up a nice, spendable reward inside. The system had a bigger flaw than bribery, though. The ballots were all different. Different colors, sizes, fonts, illustrations, logos. It was very easy to spot someone walking up to cast a vote for the other side and dissuade that wrong-headed suffragist through a kind word, an intimidating word, or a good old American punch in the face. Election Day became an arms race, with both sides hiring the most intimidating, most violent, and most heavily armed poll watchers they could find. A rarer use of Big Nasty is one alleged, more often than proven, was for cooping. That's when vagrants and drunks in large cities were kidnapped off the street or out of bars and beaten, drugged, plied with booze, intimidated, coaxed, flattered, bribed, plied with more booze, and kept in a coop of Shanghai citizenry only to be freed after voting in multiple costumes, multiple times, in multiple locations. Some historians think Edgar Allan Poe was a victim of cooping, as he was found delirious on an election day in 1849 by a polling place in Baltimore, wearing shabby clothing that didn't look like his. He died under a doctor's care before he could explain what happened. I'm skeptical. Many of the details came from Poe's doctor, who spent the rest of his life dining out on increasingly dramatic retellings of the writer's death. At various times, Dr. Moran told people Poe's last words were either A. Lord help my poor soul B. Self-murderer, there is a gulf beyond the stream, where is the buoy, lifeboat, ship of fire, sea of brass, test shore no more or C. A completely improvised couplet Poe rattled off on his deathbed that both accepted Jesus and rhymed. The cooping theory is possible but unprovable, a fable made suspicious forevermore by every teller's urge to make the death of E.A. Poe appropriately spooky-sad. Despite, or even because of the chaos of booze, bribes, and violence, voter turnout was at record levels throughout the nation in the 1800s. Now, a lot of this is related to who could vote for most of the 1800s, certain white men, and efforts throughout the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries to disenfranchise communities of color. But even with that caveat, presidential elections that get around 50% voter turnout in the modern era would get turnouts in the high 70s or low 80s. Some parishes in Louisiana were reporting 112 to 140% voter turnout during the Gilded Age. That's due to a combination of voter fraud and, to a lesser degree, the fact more people came out for elections than for censuses. Elections were a lot more fun. In 1871, a few months before Chicago burned in the Great Fire, Illinois passed a law banning the sale or free giveaway of alcohol within a mile of any polling place on any election day. The ordinance left enforcement to local authorities, so party operatives' ability to ply voters with free booze depended on how much the town's current mayor cared about that particular law. 
Every problem with the American vote was also going on where women glow and men plunder, so in the 1850s our friends down under invented the modern secret ballot. The Australian ballot was printed by the state, listed all the candidates from all the parties, and was filled out in a private voting booth. America saw its first Australian ballot in Louisville, Kentucky during the 1888 presidential race. Illinois' first secret ballot was in a vote on a liquor license in a small town of Berlin in 1891. On July 20, 1891, in a veritable sweatbox constructed by his son in the corner of the village squire's office, town elder Moses Butcher, 87, became the first Illinoisan to vote in private. The saloon in question closed its doors election day as it was within 100 feet of the polling place, the law of the time. After a 35-33 to pro-temperance vote, the bar never opened again. Despite the two weeks of night school voting lessons the entire town was given leading up to the election, two Berliners still goofed at the polls, scratching out the option they didn't like instead of marking next to the one they did. The newspapers, by the way, still printed the names of all the voters and their votes after the race. At this time in history, the secret and secret ballot only applied up until the moment a ballot was cast. Despite the learning curve that took American democracy from screaming the preferred candidate's name between swigs of bumbo to sober lines leading up to a silent booth, the secret ballot would be nationwide by 1892. So on Election Day 1884, in the nation's last presidential election before those sneaky Australian ballots started infiltrating the land, bearded, battle-scarred, possibly earless, an entirely terrifying Blackjack Yatta showed up for duty. The Bumble Brawler had been deputized, a U.S. Marshal, to protect the sanctity of the vote at the 3rd Precinct of the 2nd Ward. You're sitting by the polling place. Now a word from our sponsors. If you need a circus host or a circus clown, or need an attorney for a small matter, look me up. I'm Scott Perez, clown lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's not actually a sponsor, but Scott from the Amazing Prezini Brothers is the musical guest in Episode 2. If you do want to support the Chicago Corruption Walking Door podcast without having to break into the cutthroat world of clown law, you can visit the show at patreon.com slash corruption tour. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and corruption tour is all one word. If you become a Patreon patron at the $5 a month level, you'll receive a bunch of extra patron-only bonuses, including extra episodes, full interviews, videos, the corpse map of Chicago, a kids' activity page for gerrymandrists and training, a tip explainer that won't make your eyes glaze over, possibly cross-stitch patterns, and other civics insanity to accompany that week's episode. The first bonus, an extra episode looking at the history of black police officers in the 1800s, is already online. Check it out at patreon.com slash corruption tour. Back to the show. Chapter 3. Flood Tubs and Ruffians A lot of men in seedy garb gathered at the dawn of the bleak morning in front of the local headquarters of the leading parties yesterday, the Chicago Herald wrote the day after the 1884 presidential election. They were inaugurating the great national day in which the sovereign people quadrennally choose the chief magistrate. Thinly clad and with a kind of forbidding look about them, they were, nevertheless, an important factor in the expected turmoil of the great day. They were the ticket peddlers and healers, whose patriotism is gauged by the compensation of a day's freezing and shivering at the polls. Adepts only dexterously handling splits and pasters, their services are often underrated, especially in regard to local issues. The split tickets were as variegated as the pasters, and each individual voter had ample opportunity to satisfy his sincere conviction, whimsical notion, 
or personal prejudice in regard to any candidate. There were the independent Republican tickets, with Cleveland and Hendricks names and electors, and Republican state and county tickets. There were the Greeny tickets, straight Republican, with the names of Democratic electors pasted in the proper place, or vice versa. There were combinations with the Republican national and Democratic state and county tickets, and they were all placed where they would do the most good. Attached to each package of tickets was an envelope containing the stuff. This was eagerly grasped by the Patriots for hire. And then each one went off in a shuffling gate to his particular precinct, where the stuff was quickly converted to the ardent, which could be had by way of back doors of such establishments as were closed in obedience to the order of his honor the mayor. At least so the placards on the glass panes of the front door read. The voters, however, kept comparatively sober, and the result was that the election was not marked by as many heinous brawls as was expected. That's about as romantic a description as you're gonna get of a bunch of party goons slashing up a heap of ballots, passing them off to voters, and then getting drunk at supposedly closed bars with unmarked envelopes of cash. The press played a role in inciting those brawls, doing their part to instill paranoia, fear, anger, and, in the case of the Republican-leaning Chicago Evening Journal, a call to arms that reads like a Trump tweet. If the Democrats win the election in Cook County, it'll be by disfranchising hundreds, if not thousands, of Republican voters and by frauds at the polls, or in counting the ballots when the polls close at 7 o'clock this evening. They should be watched. The watching fell to the rowdiest thugs the U.S. Marshal Service could rouse from the bars and deputize. As the Chicago Herald wrote in an editorial two days after the murder, As political contests have become more spirited, the marshals, acting as party agents simply and having an eye only to party service, have fallen into the habit of scouring the slums for desperate men, instead of making an effort, as is the case with the police, to find trusted and reputable gentlemen. The exertion is usually directed towards the discovery and enrollment of blood tubs and ruffians. The manifest purpose of the law under which these appointments are made is to intimidate voters of the party which does not chance to be in power. And no secret being made of this, it naturally follows that the more terrible a deputy marshal can be made, the more good will his party receive from his services. Blackjack Gatto was good at his job. The pirate was one of U.S. Marshal Alfred Miles Jones, he went by Long Jones because, again, with the cool 1800s political nicknames, was one of Jones's three picks for a blood tub Republican for the polling place at Harrison and State. The other two were former police detective John Fletcher, who had been dismissed for cowardice after a fellow officer's murder, and an alcoholic hack cab driver named Big Jim Smith. Meanwhile, and conspicuously ignored by the Democrat-leaning Herald, the Democrat-led Cook County Board was filling the ranks of special constable with its own bruisers. Because that's what police were in the 1800s. To quote University of Nebraska at Omaha professor Samuel Walker's a Critical History of Police Reform, The Emergence of Professionalism, which, aside from the nerdy-ass name, is a really good read. From the moment of their creation, the police were the creatures of partisan politics. The officer on the beat was less a public servant than an agent for a given political faction. So the strong arms of Chicago were being divvied up by party, given badges of competing agencies, and sent into polling places across the city, armed, liquored up, and told they were in charge. It was hardly to be expected that yesterday would pass without bloodshed, the next day's evening journal wrote. The exact nature of what happened where you're sitting hides somewhere between tales told 130 years ago by political hacks and goons trying to save their own skins on a witness stand. Their lies, truths, and half-drunk reminiscences were filtered through history by party-loyal newspapers hellbound to DFI whichever gang happened to be on their side. In short, stories vary.
All the versions tend to include U.S. Deputy Marshal James Smith pointing a gun at Chicago police officer Edward Clare's face, drunkenly screaming about how he would kill any white sons of bitches that wore a tin star. Republican poll watcher Jim Smith was black. So was the ex-cop John Fletcher, the Republican supervisor for the site. Blackjack was white. So we have two black deputy U.S. Marshals, one of whom used to be a Chicago police detective, in 1884. And earlier on, I mentioned Ike Rivers, the African-American political operative who became Mayor Washburn's private policeman, despite the fact, and I still can't get over this, that he bit off an alderman's thumb. The past was not as homogeneously white as the average grade school textbook or Oscar bait period piece would have us believe. It was, however, racist and horrible. And it's a story way too big to get into as an aside. So if you're still up for more podcastery after listening to me rattle off 1600s voting methods, I've included an 18-minute bonus episode talking about the history of black police officers for Patreon patrons. Go to patreon.com slash corruption tour, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and corruption tour is all one word, and sign up at the $5 a month level. If you want to know more about the history of African-American police officers and don't want to become a Patreon patron, I recommend the books Black Police in America by W. Marvin Delaney, Samuel Walker's A Critical History of Police Reform, and Burns and Koykendall's 1980 essay, The Black Police Officer, A Historical Perspective, which you can find online at Sage Pub. The Patreon bonus episode goes into this in depth, but the gist is all police jobs, all city jobs at the time, were 100% patronage jobs. They were political hires. If you got a city job, it was as a reward for party loyalty, and your party happened to be at power at the time. This is a long-winded way of saying that if Chicago at the time happened to hire a competent, dedicated police officer, it was sheerly by luck. And Chicago wasn't that lucky when they hired John Fletcher who lasted for seven weeks before being fired for cowardice. Fletcher had been on the city payroll as a fireman for six years before joining the police force in 1882. Seven weeks into his job, Detective Fletcher and two white officers, Clarence Wright and Tim Foley, were tracking down recently fired Pullman Porter Bill Allen. Allen had beaten a former co-worker to death with a carpenter's hammer, accusing the man of being the one who reported him to their bosses for theft. After Fletcher used connections to track Allen down, Officer Wright knocked on the porter's door. A woman answered. Behind her and with a rifle resting on her shoulder stood the accused. Allen shot Officer Wright dead. Detective Fletcher and Officer Foley ran, letting Allen escape. There was a massive manhunt, but soon Bill Allen was dead. His body put on display for passersby at the Displaine Street Station because that's just something police did then. Fletcher and Foley were both fired for cowardice. Fletcher tried to defend himself in an interview with the Tribune, claiming that the mayor still supported him, but he was never reinstated as a cop. The fact Fletcher was still doing political work two years later as a deputy marshal does seem to indicate that he hadn't lost all favor within the Republican Party. So that's our cast. A whorehouse pirate who knew how to work jurisdictions. A disgraced ex-cop who bounced from patronage job to patronage job. And an alcoholic cabbie. When the polls closed at 7 p.m. November 4th, 1884, two and a third hours after the sun finally gave up on the cold muck of a day, representatives from each party headed to back rooms across the city to witness the vote counting and ensure a shenanigan-free election. This was the job of the precinct committeeman, which for the Republican side in the polling place at Harrison and State was a doctor named C.H. McAllister. Dr. McAllister couldn't be found when it was time to do his witnessing, so Fletcher, the Republican supervisor for the site, 
asked Yataw to fill in. This point, stories vary. Either a Democrat ticket peddler objected to the pirates sliding into committee man duties, or else a very drunk Big Jim Smith started yelling that if Yataw got to watch the counting, he did too. Whatever happened, an argument broke out. Pushing, shoving, yelling. Democratic constables and Republican deputy marshals each rushed in to help their side. A partisan rumble that ended with U.S. Marshal aiming a gun in a Chicago cop's face while screaming about white sons of bitches and tin stars. After Yatta and Fletcher talked Smith down, Officer Claire arrested Yatta and Smith. When Officer Claire stepped outside to hail a paddy wagon, Yatta and Fletcher also arrested Smith. So let's review. Deputy Marshal Fletcher hadn't been arrested by anyone. Deputy Marshal Yatta had been arrested by the Chicago police, and Deputy Marshal Big Jim Smith had been arrested by both the Chicago police and the U.S. Marshals Service and was still very drunk. Fletcher and Yatta then started hauling their prisoner co-worker North to the Custom House to face the full brunt of the law. I mean, the full brunt of the law from the Republican-led federal authorities who appointed them instead of from the Democrat-backed local police. A mob followed, demanding Fletcher and Yatta take Smith to the Harrison Street Police Station instead. Yatta yelled back to the crowd that he would not be turning Smith over to the police, so the federal agents trod on, joining by howling politicos and patriots from both parties. Some screamed for their heads, some screamed for the heads of the people screaming for their heads, and a man named Randall Woodfolk begged Fletcher for a gun so he could kill some white sons of bitches too. About 30, 40 feet west of your media school and dog park, you'll hit a street called Plymouth Court. There's a Starbucks on one corner just north of a self-park lot. There's a condo building built out of an old linotype factory on the third corner, and the fourth corner is where Jones Prep Teachers Park. This intersection is where disgraced ex-cop John Fletcher and floating whorehouse proprietor Julius Yatta, in their roles as representatives of the nation's oldest federal law enforcement agency, started firing into the crowd. The mob scattered. A Democratic ticket peddler named Moses Zamonski was shot in the foot as he tried to run away. A special constable named William Crenane was not as lucky. A bullet struck him in the neck. Crenane crawled to a butcher shop trying to find shelter but bled out on the butcher shop floor. The place the young Canadian immigrant bled to death is now the parking lot for the Mergenthaler Linotype Building Condominium Association. Fletcher Yeton Smith disappeared into the dark. At some point, they popped up at the custom house to turn Smith over to Uncle Phil Hoyne. Police arrested Fletcher and Smith there, squirreling them away to an undisclosed location to stymie any lynch mobs, but Blackjack had vanished again. Blackjack Yatow reappeared at 8.30 p.m. back at the 3rd Precinct 2nd Ward polling place on the corner of Harrison and State. He wanted to get back to work, watching the counting of the votes. Chapter 4. Twos and Fours The Republican gunplay at the 3rd Precinct of the 2nd Ward was an immediate scandal because, hey, dead body. No one realized what the Democrats pulled a mile and a half north at the 2nd Precinct of the 18th Ward for two weeks until election canvassers opened an envelope containing the returns from the recent state senatorial race. This second scandal was ultimately more dangerous to democracy. It was also really stupid. As the later History of Chicago recalled, the word for in the sentence Henry W. Lehman had 420 votes for a state senator, as it was originally written, had been erased, and the word to had been written in its place. 
and the word two, opposite the name of Rudolf Brand, as originally written, had been erased, and the word four written in its place, making the vote appear to be 474 instead of 274. The Chicago Tribune, the day after the discovery, added the even sadder detail that the new numbers were written, quote, in a peculiar shade of ink differently colored from the rest of the writing. Maybe today it's in the office towers and glitzy bars of River North. Maybe it's where the condos bloom by the former Cabrini Green, or among the last industrial holdouts on the southern half of Goose Island. It doesn't matter. Wherever within the old 18th Ward it happened, someone committed a fraud that parents would laugh at a grade schooler for trying on a report card. They scribbled over the grade in the wrong color. A few days after the two and four were spotted, the conspirators stole the ballot box. According to the Daily News, at a saloon near the old courthouse at Dearborn and Hubbard, they stuffed it with fake ballots to confirm the fake numbers that they had scribbled in. The tickets were all new and clean, recently printed, and had been folded in the exact same manner. The forgers even put down Lehman's father-in-law and brother-in-law as having voted for Brand. The race was vital in setting the razor-thin party majority down in Springfield, and the precinct was vital in the race since, overall, Democrat Brand had won by 10 forged votes. The state legislature and Governor John Marshall Hamilton later intervened, appointing Republican Lehman to his likely rightful seat. The printer that the conspirators had gotten to make up the fake ballots later flipped on them. There was a trial, fines, and jail time. He's not as pretty as he once was, but he knows a heap more. The Tribune wrote after conspirator Joe Mackin was pardoned in 1889. And that, folks, is the sum of American political history. All it's ever been, from Washington's bumbo to Blackjack's pistols to the modern fiddling and finagling with voter ID laws and gerrymandered borders, is a battle to switch 4 to 2 and 2 to 4. To make the official version of the people's tally anything other than what the people chose, justifying our sins is savvy because, man, have you seen the other guys? The Scribblers in the 18th Ward and Bloody Yatta II are more than some old-timey stories to kick off this podcast with insight and bloodshed. They're a baseline. They're the purest politicians. The same mixture of savvy, brutality, and true belief in a cause fuels civics today. The 1800s just used a cudgel where we prefer a spreadsheet. At 10 a.m. January 30th, 1885, the jury appeared before Judge Joseph E. Gary to announce the verdict in Crenane's murder. This, by the way, is the same Judge Gary who would later preside over the debacle of justice known as the Haymarket Trial. In Blackjack's trial, the marshals claimed a group of special constables, unprovoked, just started threatening Big Jim Smith. So, naturally, Yataw and Fletcher arrested Smith for his first protection, you see. Then, while, quote, peacefully and lawfully proceeding to the office of Philip A. Hoyne, Esquire, Commissioner of the Court, they were assaulted and fired upon with pistols and other deadly weapons in the hands of a large body of armed men, among whom was said Canaan. They got his name wrong greatly outnumbering your petitioners. They fired no shots at their set assailants and made no attack on them whatsoever. Then, according to the version of events presented by Yato and Fletcher's lawyers, one of the special constables just pulled out a gun and shot Kernane. One of his own men. Just cause. Smith was acquitted. Fletcher was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to two years hard labor. Blackjack Yato. Bumbo con man, political strong arm, possible killer, possible crank, possibly earless, 
was cleared of all charges. As Yatov's lawyer told the Tribune after the acquittal, he may be a very bad man, but he was not on trial for that. Blackjack died a few years later, either a villain or some mild local color, depending on where you got your news in 1893. The Floating Bethel Association bought the bum boat after Blackjack died and converted it into a chapel, a floating church boat cruising the Chicago River, ministering to sailors and orphans. We started this story with quotes about Blackjack, the floating whorehouse, and possibly earless face from a 1900 Chicago Tribune article. The article wasn't actually about Blackjack. It was a eulogy for the recently deceased alderman Jim Appleton, the one who once beat the crap out of Blackjack before getting his thumb bit off by Ike Rivers. Blackjack Yataw, Jim Diapp, Ike Rivers, Buck McCarthy, Joe Lammers, and the other brawling politicians of the 1800s were brought into the article as an exhibit of what the past was like. As the article put it, Those who are still alive are most of them settled down, and in the days of their peaceful and quiet old age, watch with something like contempt the careers of a new generation of political bosses, who depend more on intrigue and careful manipulation than upon the strength of their good right arm and their reputation as fighting men. Chicago politics was entering the 20th century, and the author of the Trib article didn't like it. The article called a few of the new crop of politicians out by name as symptoms of the weaker century to come. Of the present aldermen from the First Ward, Hinky Dink Kenna is too small and slender in figure to ever cut much of a figure in a mix-up, while the bathhouse depends for popularity on his startling clothes and squeaky tenor voice. In the good old days, the fighting politicians of the first would have beaten the head off a candidate for office who wore vests covered with large pink polka dots and sang sentimental love ditties of his own composition. We'll meet Hinky Dink Kenna and Bathhouse Coughlin in the next episode. Next week on the Chicago Corruption Walking Tour. Just waiting on the fish out with no tomato. Best wearing suburbanite, leading a crowd of authenticity bestowing people of color in a spontaneously choreographed rendition of Twist and Shout. Oh, he's your friend, I 